Before we get started, I just want to give you a quick heads up that we will be talking about the Holocaust in this episode because in episode number nine of Band of Brothers, they depict the Holocaust. And so we will be talking about that from a historical perspective. So if you're listening with kids, you may just want to give this one a listen on your own first. Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Although, if you've listened to the last few episodes of Based on a True Story, you'll know that we haven't covered movies. And today, we're going to continue that trend as we finish our look at the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. This is part three, so if you haven't heard the first two parts, then I would recommend checking those out first, because today we're going to cover episodes number eight through ten of Band of Brothers. That means we'll be reconnecting with Marty Morgan here in a minute. Marty is an author and historian whose work you've heard plenty about in the first couple of episodes in this series, but if you haven't yet, make sure to check out his work on the TV series called What on Earth, as well as another one called Strange Evidence. Both of those are on the Science Channel. Before we start our conclusion to the Band of Brothers series with Marty, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here is how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the eagle's nest was Hitler's home. Number two, the point system was a real thing. Number three, during the 1944 Christmas season, the American soldiers trapped in Bastogne was a developing story being followed back in the United States. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Marty Morgan about the historical accuracy of episodes 8, 9, and 10 of Band of Brothers. We'll kick off today in episode number eight, The Last Patrol. Easy Company is in Hagenau, France in February of 1945. And right away, we find out that the 101st was made famous because of what happened in Bastogne. Now, I wanted to ask you about this because a lot of times stories and legends grow long after the fact. But in this case, it sounds like the stories of the 101st started almost immediately. Is that true? It is true because there was nationwide awareness of the ongoing situation in the Battle of the Bulge, particularly the ongoing situation in Bastogne, so that people back home, right in the middle of the Christmas season of 1944, were aware of the fact, as they celebrated Christmas, that there were about 11,000 Americans trapped in a perimeter in the city of Bastogne in Belgium, and that their fate was largely up in the era. And it was headline news that everyone followed. Everyone followed this as a developing story, and which I don't want to say that that's unique to American history. It certainly wasn't that. But it took the harnessing of all of the informational distribution power of the American military to get that story out there and to keep people updated on a regular basis. Because after all, it wasn't a matter of there being a rat line whereby photographs and information and personal accounts and bulletins could get out of Bastogne. It was surrounded by the enemy. 
And what it did, it created a headline story that everyone could follow right at a time period when most people were at home during the holiday season anyway. And it was a cliffhanger because with each passing day, they didn't know what was going to happen. And almost as you were saying that, in my mind, I'm hearing ties to the Alamo and that kind of concept where you have these Americans that are surrounded and we don't know what's going to happen. Of course, a little more media coverage in World War II, <laughs> but uh, that same sort of you don't know what's going to happen situation. That's completely correct. And it, it, the situation was made all the worse by the fact that the outcome of the siege at Bastogne, it could have gone either way. I think we're guilty of the hindsight of, oh gosh, it's 76 years now. We know how that whole story ended. The people who were following the story 76 years ago, they didn't know how this was going to end. They didn't know if Bastogne would hold on. They didn't know that Patton's Third Army would ultimately relieve them. And people, therefore, there was a genuineness to their concern and their interest about what was happening. Because there were other cities that they didn't manage to hang on. I think of the, the city of St. Vith, where you had this German onslaught that was pushing toward the city. Toward the city, the city was ultimately abandoned and then bombarded. And there's no reason why the outcome of the fighting around Bastogne could have come to some similar fate, although it would have been different because St. Vith was never cut off. It was never surrounded. It's just the enemy pressed in, and we abandoned the city and pulled back to more favorable defensive lines. So if Bastogne's situation had continued at critical mass, and I'm indicating critical mass as being the time period December 22nd to December 26th. Well, it can even back up a little farther from that. It could back up to the 20th. This week-long period during which Bastogne was functionally surrounded by the enemy, nobody could get out with supplies dwindling with each passing day, with strength dwindling as a result of, the, uh, of attrition with each passing day. No reasonable person could have simply concluded that, oh, this will work out. It'll be just fine. In fact, reasonable people probably had every reason to be concerned that Bastogne would end as a bad news story. Of course, it, it doesn't, thankfully, but there was no guarantee that we would fight our way through them and that we would do it in, a, in such a timely way that we could reach the force in Bastogne before all the supplies ran out. Because Bastogne had basically only a few days left. And when you boil it down to a handful of days, it's easy to see how the Germans could have turned that into a victory. I can see now how people hearing that, their legend would, would be almost immediate at that point because they did manage to pull it out when things could have easily gone the other way. They did. And that's one element of the mystique that's often supplied to it because the, I feel like there is a mystique to the Bastogne incident. It, it had an arresting quality. People paid attention to it. It was a developing story. It was a cliffhanger. It was a very, very compelling news story within this. It was a little story that big within, uh, it was a small story within the framework of a very, very large story. And if there's one thing that I think we can all recognize is that when you suddenly carry out a data dump on people where you just overwhelm them with statistics and numbers that they often don't mean a lot. When you take people who, who aren't studying the ebb and flow of the tactical situation in Europe in late 1944, people who weren't studying it closely with each passing day, they suddenly wanted to know what was, what was the situation with this big story about this city in Bastogne. 
And it provided some manageable ideas that the non-specialist general public could digest easily, whereas the overall breadth of the Battle of the Bulge was another matter. For the average person, it's so much bigger than things that came before it. Battles that came before it that could kind of pass in the night without much, without much of a mention or without offering much of a distraction to people. Like I think of the battles at Cherbourg and Aachen. Those are very battles that interest me very much. And they just didn't resonate the way that this, this brief siege at Bastogne did with the people. So the story developed this mystique because it's the one chapter within a broader book that you can really understand. It had the cliffhanger qualities about it. It made people pay attention to it over other stories, I mean, to the neglect of other stories. And with that being the case in the aftermath of the war, it became the focal point of the process of memorialization, the way that we remembered the Battle of the Bulge, because the Battle of the Bulge was so very big. A fascinating little detail is that the Army makes a decision about commemoration, and the Army decides that it's not going to commemorate anything below the division on the battlefield. The Army decides that it's that the emphasis will be on eventually this the town of Bastogne, because eventually this memorial is built there called the Martison. And it was imagined at first, I think, naively, back in the 1950s, it was imagined that the Martison Memorial, which is this rather impressive star-shaped structure, and you can climb to the top of it, and it provides a narrative of the Battle of the Bulge. It lists all of the units on the division level that were involved. It lists all of the states, 48 at the time. They went back and added Alaska and Hawaii. But the Martison Memorial was at first imagined as being the place where all of the commemoration for the Battle of the Bulge would take place. And I say that that's naive because now it's a stop along the way and people are interested in it. And overwhelmingly, the place that people go, the place that remains the most popular, are places that are associated with E Company of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. It's like the Bois Jacques. People become very interested in it. I always pick the wrong things to specialize in. That's my, that's my gift. And so when I got the most interested in the Battle of the Bulge, I started concentrating on the way that the Battle of the Bulge unfolded in Luxembourg. And as we discussed last time, Luxembourg is the preliminary chapter before Bastogne, because all the German units that fight their way across Luxembourg, those are the German units that are fighting around Bastogne. And I find to, to this day, as somebody that's been leading tours to Bastogne for 18 years now, um, I find that people are far less interested in that part of the story. And I can't give them enough information when it comes to the fighting around Bastogne. If I take them to the north, I have a hard time selling anything to them and getting them super excited about anything. But like the Malmody Massacre site, and if there's one thing that it's proven to me is that not everyone, well, you heard it here first. Not everyone's a history major. Not everyone is going to devote a lifetime to consuming uh, historical content related to the Battle of the Bulge. And the result is that most people, when they go there, what they tend to do is they tend to visit Bastogne and the site of the Malmody Massacre, and that's that. It's a very peculiar thing to see where I can say that after 18 years, there are still places that I'm looking forward to when everything's get back to normal and I can go back to. Belgium and Luxembourg, there are places that, that are associated with the battle that I have never visited. And that's with me going there for 18 years. 
And so it feels very uncomfortable and very otherworldly when, I should say it like this, the standard commercial tour of the area really just visits Bastogne, the site of the Malmody Massacre, and then people sort of, they're ready to move on. There's a lot more to that story, obviously. According to the show, the patrol in the title of the show being, or the title of the episode being The Last Patrol, that patrol happens when Easy Company is tasked with crossing the river to capture some Germans and then bring them back for interrogation. Fifteen men go under the leadership of Sergeant Martin with Lieutenant Jones as the ranking officer going along for observation. And for the most part, the patrol seems to go as planned with the exception of Jackson's grenade going off, blowing off half of his face, and he ends up dying soon after they make it back across the river. How accurate was the depiction of this patrol in the show? It's very accurate. And I really love the depiction of this episode, um, particularly the patrol in this episode, because the depiction here, it causes people to consider things that I think you don't really find in many movies. So there's an enormous amount of tension that's built up before the patrol. And then the patrol itself, I mean, we've already had all this drama and tension as a part of the buildup where we're showing how the men are tired. The men are sort of beginning to feel month after month the grinding experience of being in combat. And yet they're, um, they're sent on this mission that they're not, they're definitely not happy about going on. And the process of getting them in the buildup to the mission, the kickoff, carrying out the mission itself, it causes the viewer to follow them along and follow some aspects of the story that you just don't see in other movies. You don't see depicted with the level of accuracy that I feel like is depicted here. And a couple of things that I just noted, first of all, is like you get a brief shot of, I can't remember which character it is, but he has a lighter out and he is applying the flame from the lighter to the front sight of his M1 rifle. I don't, did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that target shooters do as a means of delivering soot to the trailing side of the of the front sight blade, and that reduces glare. So that if you get the front sight wet, if you get the whole front end of the rifle, the muzzle, the gas cylinder, if all of that gets wet and you have some beaded water on there, it will interfere with your sight picture because you'll get that glare, and that glare doesn't allow you to acquire a target as easily. What you want is a nice, subdued, matte finish on your front sight blade, and you can achieve that by applying a little bit of, it's technically the smoke that's sooting up the front sight. So you hold your lighter right below the front sight blade and that soot builds up on it and it has the effect of dampening down the reflectivity of the front sight. And I found it, I found it to be a really fascinating minor uh, molecular level detail. You also see men just in, in the same camera shot, I think, where he's one man is putting soot on his front sight. You see another man that is using electrical tape or high-speed tape, and he's taping up his field gear, so the straps associated with his field gear. And that's an effort to reduce the noise that you're going to be making so that there were certain things that men would do in anticipation of a night patrol to subdue the sound that you could potentially make obviously don't want to attract the enemy's attention. And, and I and it fascinated me to see that. It fascinated, too, to follow it step by step so that when Winters comes in and briefs them on what, what they're going to do, they have an idea of a functional plan. And you follow them through every step of the process. So you follow them through the staff work, the planning conference that precedes the mission. 
You follow them through the infiltration when they cross the river and they work their way up to the German observation post. You follow them through the execution, which is when they storm in, they use grenades, they use small arms, and they take their prisoners. And then you follow them critically through the exfiltration, meaning leaving the area, going to exfil down to the riverbank, get back on the boats, get across the river. And then fascinatingly, there are even cutaway shots where you see, I'm trying to, it might, I can't remember which soldier it was, but one of them is operating the M1919A6 30 caliber light machine gun. And as a part of the plan, once they exfilled down to the river's bank, you remember that they distributed whistles. And the plan was as soon as they started blowing on the whistles, all of this fire support would be brought to bear against this beaten zone around that observation post with the anticipation that just as their men are the most vulnerable, they've made a bunch of noise capturing their prisoners. They're retreating back down to the river's edge as a part of their exfil when they're really at their most vulnerable then suddenly a wall of fire would be distributed against the enemy, producing a beaten zone that would prevent the enemy from threatening them directly as they got in the boats to exfil across the river. And all of these steps of the mission are central in this episode. I, for one, just thought it was fascinating, and I really enjoyed that level of detail. And I found myself in the years since then considering this possibility that I remember it when I went and saw it, uh, well, I shouldn't, shouldn't say I went and saw it. I remember it when it premiered. And I remember sitting through this episode distinctly that by this point, we're deep into this series. I know I mentioned to you when we had our first conversation about this, that one of my bros had a big living room and he had HBO. So, you know, two positives right there. And so we went and we watched it at his place and we all kind of crammed in this room and and there were drinks and there was food and everybody had their girlfriends there. So it's, you know, a lot of dudes and girlfriends and wives. And this episode gave everyone something. And I remember walking away from it going, that's kind of cool. I have often said that this is not really a war movie. It's kind of a war movie. But the slow, deliberate, and careful character building, which pays off so wonderfully in Band of Brothers, it brought everyone into the story. And although you would think that little details like, all right, we have, we're putting together this team that's going to go out and going to go off and carry out this special mission. You would think that the people who are not terribly interested in military history, you would think it would bore them to tears, but I think they cared. And that's what it looked like to me that the girlfriend I had at the time wasn't really interested in military history at all. And she still sat through the episode and liked it and enjoyed watching it. And it was compelling to her just as it was to me. It was compelling to me for all the same reasons, but also because of things like soot on the front sight, taping up your field gear, infiltration and exfiltration operations, use of supporting fires, coordinated supporting fires to cover exfil. All those things interested me very much. In addition to the fact that it was a bunch of dudes that I think well acted this episode. Some of the finest acting in the series, I think, comes out of this episode. And you get the sense of all of them being worn down and tired and you can develop the sense of them liking their condition more because as is revealed as in a moment of dialogue they're indoors they're um they're sleeping inside they're getting hot meals they're in a much better place than they had been when they were at bastone but still they're worn down 
and things can change. The war can turn on them at any minute because the enemy's just across the river. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, unfortunately for, for them, they do such a good job that Colonel Sink wants them to go back and do it again. Except this time, because they blew up the house where they grabbed the two Germans from the night before, they're going to have to go further into town. And then Winters, he's going to brief the men, and he says, um, okay, everybody get a, a full night's sleep, and then report to me in the morning that you made it across the river, but you were unable to secure any live prisoners. So basically, he's asking them to ignore a direct order from Colonel Sink. Did that really happen? It did. This is a fascinating topic for us to contemplate here. And I think that's because of the fact that this is presented to us as I've hammered this idea over and over again. I'm going to hit it one last time. And that is we're really being well exposed to character development for he's still captain at this point, Dick Winters. And what we're supposed to recognize as a part of that character development is that he's not like the average officer. He's not one of these West Point ticket punching types. He's not one that's a hothead. He's not one that's incompetent. And we've seen examples of all of those character stereotypes so far in the series, haven't we? We've seen basically examples of like, here's what Winters wasn't. And now we're seeing, we're seeing here uh, uh, with this episode, we're provided with this fantastic examples of what everyone typically recognizes as being the greatness of his leadership. This idea that he realizes it's near the end of the war. He realizes that the mission, the second night in a row, will probably produce another casualty. And he makes this decision to ignore orders on purpose out of the best interests of his men. And as long as we're recognizing that the incident is it's based on something that did actually happen. I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is I have, over the 20 years since this premiered, I have asked myself, is this a great example of his leadership or is it not? 
I understand that the series wants to make him look like the soldier's soldier, and he wouldn't send men on a mission that he thought was foolish. But at the same time, some of the ways that Winters is magnified through the series, they're a little bit packed full of cliché. I mean, how many how many other war movies or war books have you ever read where one person is complimented as being great because he wouldn't do anything that he wouldn't order somebody else to do? He led from the front. He wouldn't eat before the men. They come up with these, I don't want to say that they're superficial, but they're approaching superficialities, these things that conspicuously demonstrate traditional ideas of what good leadership is. And... I would tend to argue that the Hagenau example of the of the last patrol, it's not the best example of Winters being a great leader. Because let's let's be honest, because one of the things that make us respect him, that we respect the fact that he's got a dedication to the mission, he's got a dedication to the men, he's got an optimism. We respect all of these things. And at the same time, it's a moment where we can see a little bit of like deer hunter type cynicism creep in. Like, yeah, we've got this fat cat higher up. Not that I'm calling Bob Sink a fat cat, but it's almost presenting it under those terms. We have this commander and there's even a little line, uh, an exchange of dialogue between Nixon and Winters, which I absolutely love. There's art in this episode. And one of my favorite pieces of art is that it's after they've gotten um, everyone back from the first patrol, the word leaks out to everyone that Sink wants another patrol. The enlisted men are buzzing about it. And then there's a direct cut where the camera's in front of Winters and Nixon is off behind him. And you could tell that when it cuts to them, they were in mid-conversation. And it begins with the dialogue of Winters saying, so he knows we lost a man. Nixon says, yeah, he knows. He also knows you picked up two prisoners who talked. Winters says, about what? Nixon says, OP, supply trouble, Hitler's favorite color. I don't know. None of it gets us across the river. Winters said, what's the point? Nixon says, honestly, Sink's been on the phone all day long bragging it up. I think he's just showing off now. I don't know, Dick. I don't know what to tell you. You gave him a successful patrol. Now he wants two. And then Winters says, successful. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful scene because you know what? We didn't need that full conversation. We didn't need Nixon walks up going, so what about that patrol last night? We didn't need all this foreplay. What we just needed to do was pick up right where Winters does. So he knows we lost a man, right? So we don't have to hear the point where Nixon walks up and says, hey, the boss is sending you again tonight. I know I'm full of this. I can't quit complimenting the series because I think it's excellence in filmmaking. But I, I feel, feel like it's a great moment. And at the same time, I have a problem with that moment because of the line where he says, "I what is it? Nixon says, I don't know, Dick. I don't know what to tell you. You gave him a successful patrol. Now he wants to. And so it's a little bit Vietnamish in a way. It's a little bit of like, ah, oh, this mission our lives are just being sent out here unnecessarily, that leaders are wantonly sending us out into peril without a particularly good reason for something as simple as giving the regimental commanding officer a reason to brag. The idea of the second prisoner snatch that doesn't happen, it makes for great drama, which is why I can see 
that when the episode went to screenplay, I can see why they reached for this moment because this moment provides something really, really great. And this uh, once it was written by, here we are once again with Bruce McKenna and Eric Bork, two people that know how to write and know how to write drama very well. And they have written a great moment of drama. And I could see why that moment appeals to them. But at the same time, do we typically construe direct disobedience of the commands of a higher officer as being a positive thing? I think that in the post-Vietnam era, yes, that there's a recognition for that's just the kind of like populist idea that appeals to people that he may be our leader, but he'll risk his career to protect us. It makes for a great piece of drama. It troubles me a little bit because I guess I'm reluctant to go, that's great leadership. Why then could not Winters have turned to Nixon and said, all right, here's the deal. I want to talk to the old man about this because I don't want to send him. And he could have done something else. But I think we could say that he realized that pushing back against that was fruitless and pointless. But then there could have also been, why not give Sink the opportunity to just be reasonable? Because he could have been. He could have responded to that. He knew and trusted Winters to the extent that if Winters came before him and said, sir, the mission is just going to be too dangerous. We're going to have to go a lot deeper into town this time. We're lucky to have only lost one man, but we lost a good man last night. I feel like this is a mission that we don't need to send the men out on. But Winters didn't do that. He just chose to, you know, roll with the punches, play it on the down low. And I think there are so many other things that indicate him as being an excellent leader than this. That's my opinion, and it is completely irrelevant because that's what happened. And what did it do? It made an excellent episode because it it provides something that they need very desperately. I feel like the reason that reality television as a genre works the way that it has and has resonated with people, it hurts my soul to say that, but reality TV has resonated with people. Because they so often involve a lot of tension and drama. I just use the word so often. I think I could probably use the word always instead. They always do, don't they? I mean, every everything from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills to Jersey Shore, you have people that are you're deliberately cramming them together with the expectation that fireworks are gonna fly. And it produces drama within a small a small cast of characters. And here you have it served up to you under circumstances of a true story that actually happened. It's this drama and this push-pull. Will he make the bad decision of sending the men on, on the mission that doesn't make sense? Or will he surprise everybody and order them just to stay back and he'll lie and, and he'll take the risk himself? I can see why Bork and McKenna went with this because... To be honest, this is screenplay 101. This is the exact type of drama and tension that you need in the middle of a story. And if you imagine Band of Brothers as a ghost story, or let's make it even better, a monster story where there's threat out there. If you imagine it like, you know, the movie Alien? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 1979, greatest movie ever made in human history, my favorite movie. In the movie Alien, you have these different elements that are a part of the storyline where you have the crew member, the crew members fighting for their lives, but then you also have drama and tension between them. And then there's this alien out there that might show up at any moment and hurt you. And so there's this ever present quality that's developing tension 
of the unknown and unseen force out there. And it's moving the characters into uh, tension and release, tension and release. And in this way, you could say that Hagenau is the Nostromo. Our E-Company guys are the crew of the Nostromo and the Germans are the alien. These circumstances are being used with a deliberateness as plot devices. And I can see why these master craftsmen who wrote this episode looked at these incidents and went, that's the perfect plot. That's precisely what we need. The way that the same way that like the TV show Cheers had this finite and small cast of characters and that cast, everybody on that cast of characters introduced something into the story. And, you know, some of them just got along great. And part of their story was like buddy stuff. But then you had other elements that were, that, that was certainly the case with Woody and Sam. And then you had love interest character thrown in. And then you had also the um, Fraser Crane character that's thrown in that produces a little bit of comic relief and also a little bit of tension. I use cheers all the time as a way of illustrating that the reason that you have an identified cast like this is because you need those cast members to introduce these things, to introduce levity or to introduce inspiration or to introduce tension. And here with our cast in this episode of Band of Brothers, we have all of those things present. And out there across the river is the alien. I just mixed Cheers, Alien, and Band of Brothers, and I need a drink. <laughs> well, if that really happened, what sort of repercussions then would Winters have been facing like to make that sort of a decision of ignoring an order from Sync? And that's why I push back on this as a great example of leadership, because the consequences he could have faced could have put those men into even greater peril than if he had sent them on the mission. That's because if regimental commander had figured out that this happened, he would have relieved Winters. Although, you know, it could be said that under the duress of combat and the attrition that the division was experiencing at that point, that you wouldn't necessarily sack a good officer for something like that, that you would reprimand him that you'd call him in or you'd maybe move him somewhere else. But Winters would have faced serious consequences because I consider even a reprimand from the regimental commander. I would consider that to be bad news. A strange thing that's absent here is that you don't have a battalion commander um, in place. But Winters at this point is not running the battalion yet. But Winters is still you know, working directly under the regimental commander and with a battalion commander. If it had come out, Winters would have faced some sort of important, dire consequences. Maybe not immediately, but maybe later on, maybe even after the war was over. But let's just say that, let's say Sink found out, Sink sacked him, pulled him out of the battalion staff for the 2nd Battalion 506. Yeah, let's say that happened. Then who did they replace him with? They could have then replaced him with somebody who didn't know the men and therefore looked at them more like anonymous numbers. You can send anonymous numbers across the river in Hagenau. You can maybe do that with a little, in a little more of a cavalier spirit. Then Winters, a Tacoa man, would look at other Tacoa men to send them across the river on such a dangerous mission. Um, so the consequences could have been serious. And it's, I think, a fascinating thing for us to consider where I know that for one, the world I have grown up in and entertainment is a world 
where entertainment products have been offered to me over and over and over and over again in the post-Vietnam era, where this sort of thing comes up. Every possible military historical time period, I think of like, I'm just going to assume that you're a Stanley Kubrick fan because everyone on earth should be. And why shouldn't you? Of course you are. Um, if you're familiar with Stanley Kubrick's magnificent film, Paths of Glory, there's a, an enormous amount of cynicism in that movie because it's necessarily addressing the subject of the French mutinies in 1917. And I'm not here to say that in 1917, the French were, the French were not actually cynical about it because the mutinies were produced by cynicism, by nonstop and endless slaughter. But I am saying that the Vietnam era liked to take examples of cynicism and push them to the front of the line. Well, I think something else that in the beginning of this episode, they start to set that up so that when Winters decides to not send them, it pays off. In the beginning, they, they talk about how everybody kind of senses that the war is coming to an end. So there's there's no need to risk your life at this point, right? Because everybody can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so it's not really said specifically in the show, but it's very heavily implied that, okay, since you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, why are we doing this pointless mission? Like, because we're just going to put ourselves at risk when we already know we're going to win the war. It's only a matter of time. Why should we risk our lives on this sort of mission? Is the impression that I got while I was watching it, you know, from the way they, they set it up to then to Winters deciding not to go on that second patrol. And isn't it funny that this is central, a central theme in this episode? And this is after, wasn't it just the last episode? Wasn't it just in episode seven where we had this magnificent soliloquy from Spears where he's talking about not caring? He's talking about this nihilism, this idea that you're not going to make it and you just have to accept that. And it was the last episode, wasn't it? Or was it the episode before that? At any rate, you know the soliloquy of which I speak, I believe. Yes. Which episode specifically it was in? Because he, he rose up in the past couple episodes in the Bastogne. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was the last episode. At any rate, we have that magnificent solilo- soliloquy from him where he is he's reflecting on an idea of you still have hope. That's, isn't that the central part of the, of the, the soliloquy? You know, your problem, you still have hope. And you just have to accept that you're already dead. We have that. And then we go to this episode and you can see everybody still has hope and they all think that they're going to survive. And the only thing that would prevent them from surviving if we get sent on this next stupid prisoner snatch. I'm not complaining about that. I actually love the fact that we have philosophical and psychological complexity going on there. Or, I mean, I I don't know that I'm reading too much into it because it's, on the one hand, the previous episodes ruminating about, you know, your problem is that, you know, you you still have hope. And then we cut to this episode that's packed full of a bunch of guys who they're now past the breaking point because that was a previous episode. And they're now still kind of clinging to this hope that they can make it through all of this. And this mission doesn't make it look like they're going to make it through. And in this way, this mission that that did actually happen in Hagenau, it's tailor-made. It is as if the screenplay writers wrote it themselves before Stephen Ambrose began writing the book Band of Brothers. It's 
is really set up perfectly for this human drama that we're seeing playing out in this episode. As you were saying that, I was reminded of there's another time when Nixon was talking to what I don't remember. It, it was when uh, right before Blythe got shot, I think, in an earlier episode, Nixon was talking and one of the other guys had like his reserve shoot. He was going to take it back for his fiance that, you know, they were going to get married. Harry Welsh. Harry Welsh was taking it home for Kitty. Taking it home to Kitty. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Nixon said something to the effect of, I never took you for the type or something like that. He's like, what? You know, that romantic? He's like, no, that you think we're actually going to make it back to England. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's, and I love how that line is, it's delivered with a little bit of a sardonic sort of uh, dark humor. And that's pops up a couple of times in this series. And it just shows you that they had a sober understanding of what they were up against at every step. It fascinates me too, that, as you evaluate that from one episode to the next in this series, you can actually watch that pendulum swing where there's maybe a little, you'll hear periodically a little bit of um, a little bit of dark humor, gallows humor. You'll see some, some guys kind of reflecting on lost comrades and it swings all the way through the Bastogne episodes and it swings into this episode and it's now the heart of darkness. It fascinates me that this is a measurable change of tone that occurs over the course of this series, which, once again, I think, is all the result of good writing and great acting. Very well said. Well, at the beginning of episode nine, which is called Why We Fight, we see the men looting. Spears takes some silver dishes. Nixon is looking for his VAT 69 whiskey. Uh, there's an obvious difference between the fighting that we saw in earlier episodes and what they're doing now in March of 1945, according to the show. Now, at one point, Janovic comes in and he, he tells Nixon that 300,000 Germans just surrendered. So it really does seem like the war is starting to wind down. Can you give some overall context around what was going on for Easy Company in early 1945? Yeah, because the one thing that, the, that this episode doesn't do all that great is it doesn't follow, like an antiquarian would, the movements and basically just the facts, ma'am, type storytelling of where Easy Company was and how it ended up where it did. Easy Company has gone through some interesting things. So after Easy Company gets pulled off the line in the Battle of the Bulge, after they rest up at Rachel in January, they are, are then eventually they move down to the area around Hagenau. And it's because on December 31st, 1945, the Germans throw a massive counterattack into the tactical situation in Northwest Europe called Operation Nordwind. And Operation Northwind was supposed to recapture Hagenau and then keep pushing onward and recapture the city of Strasbourg. And it was hoped that they would attack the weakened 7th Army because 7th Army had moved into and filled a little bit of a void that was left when 3rd Army moved north to join the fighting in the breakthrough during the Battle of the Bulge. So you had that happen. Easy Company, therefore, in mid-January is around Bastogne. Easy Company then moves a little over 100 miles south to Hagenau where it's, it fills in a, a place on the line. They basically fill in for the three, four, 314th Infantry Regiment of the 79th Infantry Division um, at, because they had moved. They, they were the first unit to liberate Hagenau. Easy Company, well, not Easy Company, but the entire 506 moves in and replaces the 314th on the line. They then have their experiences there documented and depicted in the last patrol. And then in the aftermath of that, Easy Company is moved north 
And that's where this episode is beginning. So imagine this, if you will, the map of Europe. So you're way down here in the vicinity of Karlsruhe and uh, you're at Hagenau, not far from Strasbourg. And then the next episode starts. And where are you? You're way up north, north of Cologne and south of Dusseldorf, because this episode is depicting Easy Company at a place called Sturzelberg. And that's because when this episode opens, we're in a present day and we flash back and then flash forward. And the process of that flashback, flash forward, some of the timeline get some of the timeline gets blurred. I'm not criticizing that because I completely respect the decisions that they had to make over this because you're not going to be able to go, okay, well, after Hagenau, they went back to Mormolon briefly. And then from there, they went all the way north of Cologne. They were there for a little while. And then they went back to the south again. You're not going to carefully carve all of that out. But when the story opens, they're in this area close to the Rhine River, north of Cologne, south of Dusseldorf. And they have been moved up there to fill in a place in the line. They're going to be moved again shortly. And so the episode opens with it's a surprising decision that the filmmakers made to fix a firm date. Uh, they fix it as April 11th, 1945. And I guess we'll get to it a little bit later on, but there are some problems associated with them dropping a date pin on it, making it specifically ele- April 11th. We'll get to that in a minute, but they have moved to the North to fill in a place on the line briefly in the Ruhr pocket area. And it's during this time period while they're up there that they, they're in combat and they're involved in operations. But you have unusual sequences that unfold, like Lewis Nixon gets sent to jump into, jump across the Rhine River with the 17th Airborne Division as a part of Operation Varsity on March 29th, 24th, 1945. You have that as a, you know, a part of this overall moving back and forth with Nixon and his quest, because this, this episode is sort of side questy in a way where Nixon is looking for what? He's looking for VAT 69. He's looking for his whiskey that's being teased over and over again. And then we get paid off later on with that. Once again, another storyteller's tool, another device being used by screenplay writers to make the story more emotionally rewarding and fulfilling to people. But the tactical situation in Europe at this point was that The Battle of the Bulge by now is over. The Germans have been pushed back. They have been pushed back to the Rhine River, and Allied units are now across the Rhine River. Of course, they cross the Rhine River first at a place called Remagen, which is where the Ludendorff Bridge was captured intact. Then they get across further to the north of that with Operation Varsity, which is something that's not depicted in this episode, but it's definitely name-dropped in this episode. You're seeing an easy company at the beginning of April, that's thinking back to things that happened the previous month, because, you know, you get an on-screen slate, I think, that says one month earlier, I believe. That's exactly what it says. And that's when we when we flash back a month, that's when we're starting to see a little bit of the looting, what is now sort of something that the 101st Airborne is a little bit, a little infamously known for, was collecting more souvenirs. And we're seeing a lot of silverware. There's a lot, what, cause it, cause if you just go off a of band of brothers, what are the big things? It's Lugers and silverware. What did Spears say? Finders keepers. Finders keepers. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of a fun moment. And I, what I like too is that the episode provides you a little bit of a departure. 
because like one thing that I have learned in tour guiding over the years is that we would, as a part of the typical tour experience, we would do Battle of the Bulge for a few days. And then we had to cover a lot of ground to get down to the area around the Eagle's Nest. So we had to basically reposition from Luxembourg City to Berchtesgaden. That's basically a, a full day right there. You would have enough time during that repositioning to stop at Dachau and you drive through Dachau basically on the way into Munich. So we would stop and we would visit the concentration camp at Dachau. And I'm very interested in Holocaust studies. I'm very interested in the subject and I've spent a lot of time researching, writing and visiting these sites. And I've recognized patterns about the way that people digest information about the Holocaust, because when it comes to the Holocaust, we are overexposed and undereducated. What I have found overwhelmingly is that if you give people a couple of solid hours of Holocaust stuff, you need to stop and let them have some ice cream because they've had it. That bleakness and the fact that they're confronted with these ideas, it challenges an idea that I believe most people carry with them. I certainly carry it with me. And that is the idea that we are progressively working toward enlightenment as a species that we're that people are together working toward actively working toward making the world a better place and learning from the past and observing the past and respecting it and understanding it as a means of guiding us toward that enlightened future that's on the horizon and we're working our way toward it any discussion of the holocaust just strips all of that away it just yanks it all out of your hands what it tells you is like, no, we're animals. That's what we are. And all Nazi Germany was, was the, a substitute teacher came in, took over and let the kids do whatever they wanted to. And people resorted to animalistic behaviors. I'm trying to encapsulate Nazi Germany into a couple of sentences, and that's not easy. But if anything, the National Socialist time period shows you that humankind has these tribalistic animal instincts that it looks like we're not reaching toward the enlightened beacon on the horizon, that what we are is that we're engaged actively more in reductionism, that we might have moments of greatness and we might work toward ideals. We're certainly informed by it through influences within our life, law and order, the church. These things tend to influence us toward these ideas of progression, progressivism. You can just with a simple look at history realize that that's not what humankind is doing. Humankind is is returning to its animalistic instincts over and over again. And so we would stop, I'd take everybody on a quick walkthrough tour at Dachau, which would produce a hundred questions about the Holocaust and the overall experience of the final solution. And I realized very early on when I was leading tours that when we walked out of the gates, those gates, there's a gate at Dachau that says, our bike macht frei, you know, work will set you free. When we walked out of that gate, my lesson as a tour guide was stop talking about it. Just be done with Holocaust. You had your time. People had to confront um, their knowledge of Holocaust. And at, at Dachau, you could you can go and visit two crematoria. There's an older temporary crematoria and then a larger permanent crematoria. You can go and you see those. And those things, they're troubling. They upset people. And I learned long ago that when you walk back out through those gates, be done with it and get back on the bus, talk about something fun, maybe tell a couple of stupid dad jokes to lighten the air and stop somewhere in Munich and get some ice cream.
I learned very early on, if I didn't do that, that people would just really be brought into these, these existential doldrums. And I kind of like the fact this series, it negotiates that same obstacle course in a way. Because here with this beginning part, you have what I'm, I hadn't even talked about it yet. I'm not going to talk about it now. But you have what I think is the greatest opening to a television program in television history. The opening of this episode, episode nine. But I'll come back to that in a minute. And you move from this, this very powerful emotional opening sequence to what? A month earlier and people are looting things. And it's a little bit funny. And there's also a scene where one soldier's having sex with a German woman. And so you're, you're, you've, it's like the, it's like stopping to get ice cream after you leave the duck out in a way. And it's like we had gone through so much heavy in that last episode. I mean, in Last Patrol, my God, the death scene, it's brutal. I mean, that's, it's hard to watch that. I mean, even, I don't know how many times I've watched it now, but when I watched it this time, um, Jackson's death is, it's tough to sit through. And you go through that and then you pop into the next episode and there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of, let's face it, there's a little bit of comedy with looting. And then you get Nixon who this episode's about him and it's his journey. And what do we get? We get what I think is one of the funniest lines of the whole series. It's like, it's my dog when he's talking about his wife and the divorce papers. She doesn't even like that dog. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't even like that dog, and he throws his helmet into the Jeep. And it is funny because, let's face it, um, Ron Livingston's a comic actor. He has moments in this episode where he's very serious, and I took him seriously as an actor. He took me there. But he is also a funny guy. Uh, most of his movies are comedy, and he's hilarious. And he lets that out here, and it's kind of this great little relief. Everybody can identify with it. Everyone got a giggle out of it. I remember being in the room when the it's my dog line happened the night of the premiere back in 2001. And we all just doubled over because it was hilarious. And we were looking for a moment where we could laugh. And this episode gives you that. And that's why one of the reasons that I feel like the writing in these episodes is so it's complex and it's good. And I know I keep hammering that point. So I'll just walk away from it at that. And, and on that subject, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the best quote of the entire series. When Percati says, hey, George, kind of reminds you of Bastone. And Lutz says, yeah, now that you mention it, it kind of does remind me of Bastone, except that there's no snow. We got warm grub in our bellies and the trees are fucking exploding from crowd artillery. But yeah, Frank, other than that, it's a lot like Bastone. <laughs> that line is a gift from heaven. That line was so funny and we all loved it. And it was a way of just offering, if you're going to make everybody tense up and look at the way that we all had to tense up when Easy Company got shelled in the Bois de Fazon and just the misery of the men that were so badly, that were killed and so badly injured. And here we can laugh about it now. We can giggle a little bit. And the line is delivered with just excellent comic timing and style. Rick Gomez, the guy that played Lutz, I think, I think he's great in this series. He He's often sort of off to the side in the series. And when he's on camera, he's doing something that's usually kind of funny and a little bit of a release. And we're even about to see him get a little dark. 
But as a as a recurring character in this series, I think he makes this great contribution to why we remember it, why the series is so popular even after 20 years. Well, one thing that we see while they're going through the woods, they're canvassing the area to make sure there's no Germans there, but they do stumble upon the concentration camp. And at first, they don't know what it is. Uh, the more they explore it, the more they don't believe it. What camp did Easy Company discover? And was the show correct to imply that at that point, it seems like nobody understands what these concentration camps are when they discover it. The camp that they liberate is Kaufering Gefiere, or Kaufering Number 4. The Kaufering subcamp network was 11 separate camps that were directly associated with the concentration camp at Dachau in Bavaria near Munich. And these 11 camps were satellite camps of people that came from Dachau that were involved in production. Kaufering Gefiere, Number 4, they were working on some bunkers that never even got finished in the end. Um, this is an area that is basically on that route between... Lorraine and Munich. So the area where this is, they refer to it as Landsberg in the series because they're close to um, the town of Landsberg, the, specifically the town of Landsberg, um, Lech, meaning on the Lech River, which is just about, I guess, 40 miles, 30 miles south of Augsburg, Augsburg, actually. The, so this is an actual part of the larger and more complicated story of what concentration camps were and what the concentration camp system did. And if you can tolerate just a quick diversion into that subject, I would just mention that I have functioned effectively as a, as a Holocaust educator for almost 20 years in leading tours to Europe and tours that in, involve visiting former concentration camps and, and, um, and killing centers. And this is an important point for people to to metabolize. And that's because I find that the person who has not become a history major and hasn't de dedicated their life to studying the Holocaust, that they're aware of the most infamous camps associated with the final solution. That's typically Auschwitz-Birkenau, maybe Soberbohr. Maybe they're familiar with the killing centers. There are only a handful of those. And they might be then familiar with detention camps and prison camps like Dachau was, because Dachau was not a killing center. I find that for the most part, the public education system, there's, I, I would, it seems to me that there's less deliberate time being put into educating people about what the camp's network looked like. And the camp network was this very short list of killing centers and then this massively long list of camps and subcamps that were associated with labor, uh, sometimes transportation. They had many functions. And what we're seeing at Kaufering 4 in the area around Landsberg was a camp that was associated with a construction site. So it was in basically every way temporary. And that's reflected by what you see in terms of the set piece that is ultimately built. Because imagine just being in the production side of, of Band of Brothers, and that is that you have to have a concentration camp scene. And their dedication to making that look good really appealed to me because – you see how you have big timber walls, you have barbed wire. You don't have big looming towers because Kaufring 4 wasn't a permanent camp. It was a temporary camp. And so I feel like they, and they had some pretty good photography showing these underground or these half underground barracks buildings that were constructed for the, for the men to get them out of the wind during the bad weather. There's some photo photographic evidence that exists and they built a set that looks quite real. Yeah, I was quite impressed with that. 
And then what they had to do was in creating that set, they had to also bring in actors to function as as the extras that were populating the background of the scenes. And they, what they did, I felt was a very, very impressive result because the, the scene there, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I find it to be very moving and powerful, especially in an episode that's titled Why We Fight. What you have are a bunch of actors that, that were obviously chosen specifically to look like they were starving to death. And lo- they look weak and they look sick. It's only in a couple of little quick shots that I notice people that they're, they make everybody look a little pale and sickly and they do it with makeup and it's almost unnoticeable. There are a couple of moments where you can see people where they've obviously got some heavy makeup that's trying to make them look worse, but they have produced something that to me looks like a Holocaust at the time of its liberation. And there's a stoic quietness to the way that the actors navigate that scene that um, speaks to me. And I think is extremely good. And it's depicting these awkward circumstances associated with what happened that day. And that is that you have men that find the subcamp. They bring in their higher ranking commanders. They then bring in medical staff and a decision is made that, listen, we can't let these people out. They run into town, they get food, they bring it back to the camp. And then they're told, stop feeding them and make them go back in the camp. We got to lock them up. And they actually had to do that. They had to do that, and it's because once once you have been starved down to that level, the filmmakers are careful to show you that they like get them big wheels of cheese, and they're slicing big chunks of cheese off, and then they're giving them black bread. A big problem with doing that is particularly cheese, is that for people that have been um, been on caloric restriction, that the second you dump um, cheese, which is extremely high in calories and high in fat, you dump that down their throat, they're going to get sick. They're going to end up either regurgitating or defecating out everything that gets consumed, and they're not going to get a lot of um, they're not going to get a lot of value out of eating it. The bread's not as bad, but the problem is that starving people will generally eat until there's nothing left. And the uncomfortable reality is that you have to introduce, you have to return calories back into their daily experience carefully. You can't bombard them with 3,000 calories in 10 minutes. So you, you, have to, you have to regulate and manage the way that they are returned to natural and normal nutrition. And that's why that decision had to be made right there. Stop feeding them. The other big decision, which was the decision to put them back into the enclosure, that was made because basically everybody at this stage had typhus. And typhus was the big killer in the concentration camps. and I'm sure you're familiar with what causes it, but I'll just break it down real quick. Typhus originates from lice. And whenever you cram people into cramped environments and you don't let them bathe and wash adequately on a daily basis, or when you cram them into barracks buildings in the bleak midwinter, they're going to develop lice. And the problem that ultimately leads to typhus is that as lice are crawling around on your body, you tend to itch at them. And you itch the spot that's being irritated by the louse. And when you itch it, your fingernails or the action of scratching will basically break open and tear open the, the louse's body. And it's the excrement inside the louse that then as you scratch it and drive it into your skin, it will create an infection that ultimately leads to your death under the most miserable possible circumstances. 
And so when people are infected by lice, it's extremely difficult to manage them because it's contact transmission. So if you're, everybody's all crammed in together, um, everybody's going to get it. And then if you just let them out and they are still infected by lice or infested by lice, rather, if they are just allowed out, they can infect other people. They, they'll, the lice will affect or infest the other people. And then you can have a broader typhus outbreak. Nursing people back to health in the middle of a typhus outbreak is, is extremely difficult. And it requires a lot of medical intervention. And be, once an outbreak begins, it spreads quickly. And so, and examples like what we see here, and then examples like when the 157th Regimental Combat Team was at the 45th Division reaches the, at the main camp at Dachau. They have to make, they have to confront this idea that we can't just let these people out. Everybody's got typhus. We have to de-louse everybody. We've got to manage their return to nutrition. In other words, everyone in there, even if they're standing up and walking around, they are a medical case that has to be dealt with appropriately. You can't just leave them. And so you get this very dramatic moment in the series, which I think is well acted by a number of, of the actors that are involved in, in the cast, particularly the lead guy character, I think acts very well through this. And I think Damian Lewis does this amazing job. Damian Lewis had a little bit of a difficult road to hoe in all of this. He has to be stoic, but at the same time, he has to be resolute. And if you were an actor and someone went, all right, if, it, if I was the director and I went, all right, be stoic and resolute and go. How do you do that? You watch Damian Lewis and Band of Brothers because he does that over and over again. And he's convincing and he's, he's believable and he doesn't overdo it. He doesn't seem cartoonish and Broadway. And he presents that very nicely, I think, in this episode, particularly in the Calfring 4 liberation um, sequence. There's a scene there I want to ask you about because we see when they're getting the food from town to, to take it back to the camp. I think it was Webster that he holds the baker at gunpoint. And was like, did you not smell the stench? Did you not know that this was there? And it seems like the rest of the town didn't really realize that they were there. Is it true that the Nazis hid the camps from the towns nearby? Can I give you a typical bureaucratic answer? Because I have to qualify it. That's For me, that's not a simple yes or no. It's a qualified sort of. Because... What the German government by this point in the war had realized was that there were some ugly realities about things that they were doing that were better off out of the public eye. They didn't want the civilians seeing it because you might be familiar with a program that Germany instituted basically simultaneous to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and that is the T4 program named T4 after Tiergartenthiere, which was the address in Berlin where this office was administered. The program is better known as the Euthanasia Program. And it was a program by which doctors carried out, they supposedly um, provided merciful euthanizations to terminally ill patients. You're probably familiar with the program. And the program was ultimately, like almost everything under the National Socialist Third Reich, it was perverted to the point where they weren't just providing a mercy death to terminally ill people. They rolled in people who suffered from seizure disorder, alcoholics people who were criminals. And then in some cases, they just simply went to nursing homes and cleared it out of old people that hadn't been visited in a long time. And they euthanized them 
I'm using air quotes around euthanasia because that's not a mercy killing. That is a murder is what that is. And so the German state began murdering terminally ill and old people and sick people way back in 39, starting in 39, really reaching its stride in 1940. And one thing that they found out very quickly is, was that people spoke out about this, um, particularly from the pulpit. There were a number of religious leaders that began to speak out a little bit. And in a, in a way that might surprise you, we would tend to expect that, I mean, how do we expect Nazi Germany to react to everything? You know, with jackbooted authoritarianism, that's what we expect. We always imagine National Socialist Germany as being the ultimate police state. It's worse than that. It's far more sinister than that because Germany didn't do that. It would eventually, you know, intimidate, round up, and even murder members of the clergy who spoke out. But at this earlier stage of the war, what Germany did was they went, all right, fine, let's take it all over the border, which is why the killing centers that are ultimately established for the industrial mass murder of civilians in Europe, those killing centers, none of them are in Germany. They're all in Poland. That's also why you see the Einsatztruppen, the mobile killing units that follow the invasion force into the Soviet Union. They're killing them where? They're not sending them back. They're not sending them back west. They're killing them right there. They're doing it in such a way that the German people could still entertain fantasies about what the Reich wanted them to think it was. People could still entertain this fantasy of the Reich, it, it's tough love. It's out there to push people around, but it's in, at, the, at the bottom, it's fair, and we can be proud of it because the Reich is protecting our people. I'm not here to say that the Reich hid every detail associated with the final solution from the German people, but it certainly did try. It is to the point where part of the reason why I wanted to qualify my response to your question is that it's rather notoriously known that at Dachau, um, civilians were brought in. That is something that's also depicted here as an emotional payoff moment in this episode where we have that moment where Nixon goes into a house looking for VAT 69. You know, the moment I'm talking about. He goes in there portrait with a little black ribbon indicating a dead officer. He throws it on the ground. Woman comes out and gives him the cold German stare. Dog barks. Got to be the dog. Yep. The dog bark. I, I think it's a, a beautiful, yeah, it's a beautiful scene. It's the barking dog. And even a little scene is dumb. A set piece as a dog sitting on the stairs barking at him as he leaves. What does it do? It all has purpose. It's funny because of that scene, there are moments where when I watched it again before this conversation, I watched it and I had a conversation with myself about that moment in the series where I went, is that scene too much or is it too little? Because there's, no there's no dialogue. You don't need it. The scene, I think, clearly says dialogue was unnecessary. Everything that needed to be communicated in that scene was done by actors silently. Well, that is except for the dog. And then I thought, okay, so it's, was this melodrama was this cheesy melodrama or was this just what we needed and i am concluding that it is just what we needed because what we needed was the moment where we're understanding the impact of the war on a standard on a german household the barking dog does what it provides us the continuing character development of Lewis Nixon, who's the star of this episode. I mean, I don't want to say he's the star, but he's certainly the center, the central cast member of this episode. And even a little something as quick as one quick cutaway shot to a dog barking provides 
character development. And my God, that's what makes this series so great. That's why we love this series. Even to the point where I'm complimenting a dog for contributing to the character development. But that's what I'm doing. And so we get that moment because then it cuts to later on. That moment's paid off where Nixon sees the same woman having to help bury the bodies at Calvary 4, which is something that actually happened. And the reason I mentioned it and I got went down this road is that I've found myself over the years in taking people to Dachau. I have found people bringing this subject up. They bring up the subject of how did the Germans not know? And I always tell them, listen, I can tell you how they didn't know if you want me to. You might not like it, but I'm going to tell you how they did not know. With the Dachau example specifically, when Eisenhower got there, when there was a big inspection and the order went out to make the civilians come in, trucks went into the town of Dachau. And if you're familiar with where Dachau is, it sits to the northwestern outskirts of the city of Munich. It's almost 10 miles outside of town. And Dachau did not, it's well, I mean, in 1934, it was established basically as a prison for the government. It goes through basically three distinct periods where at first it's a prison where you could get convicted, go to Dachau, serve your sentence, and then be released back into German society after having paid your, your debt to society. It then goes through a central period where it became basically a transportation center, just as the final solution begins um, moving, the engine begins moving in its, in its designed and intentional way in 1942. And then toward the end of the war, it reaches its third and final period, which is that Dachau functions as a prisoner of war camp. And in fact, by the time that it gets to the third period, Dachau is basically all of the above. It's all of those things. And in addition to that, Dachau was nested next to and as a part of an army base, an, an army facility, a post. And in fact, one of the finest military hospitals in Germany was right there next to the camp. That's why you see recovering soldiers. You see soldiers that get killed at the time of Dachau's liberation, and they were soldiers who were patients in that hospital. So Dachau is a separate community 10 miles to the northwest of the city of Munich, and the call goes out, round up civilians to bring them in here and help bury the dead, because there was a train that had a very, very large quantity of dead concentration camp inmates who had been transported from camps to the north. And they had to be buried immediately. It was a crisis that had to be dealt with immediately. So when the call went out, trucks went into downtown Dachau. And so from the camp to basically the high street in downtown Dachau, it's not even a quarter of a mile because it's, it's not a big town. The trucks go in there and you can bet your bottom dollar, everybody knew it's time to disappear. It's time to not be seen on the street. They knew that the Americans are all here. Let's not be out in public. So all the civilians had basically crawled inside and they weren't coming out. They rounded up a few, but they didn't round up nearly enough people. And when they failed to come up with a sufficient number of people, the trucks were then sent into downtown um, Munich. And those people could definitely testify to, I had no idea what was going on up there. Those people, if somebody challenged them, like, how could you not smell it? They could say, I didn't smell anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Those people, definitely, they would never have had an opportunity to go inside that camp. And if anything, what they knew is like, oh, there's Dachau, that little community up there, and there's a military base up there. So this idea of this plausible deniability, when it's brought up, and it's brought up here, and it's presented in a way that I find is a little bit typical, and that it's brought up with this very, you know, sort of snarling and cynical quality of, 
they knew. These people, they knew. And I don't think that they necessarily did. Sounds like there are a lot of people there that were further away than the way the show portrays it. It's like, okay, these people are right here in town. So, of course, they're going to be close enough to be able to, to know that something's going on. Yeah, critical detail would be how far away did they go to collect these people up? Did they just collect them up from from right there or did they go into downtown Landsberg? Where did they go? And yeah, because if they're in Landsberg is a couple of miles from the camp. It's from this campsite. And just for the record, this campsite was established. Gosh, it was established in. I think it was established in June 44. So. We're here now at the time of the liberation, which is the end of April, 1945. And so the camp's been there for 10 months. If somebody builds something new on the other side of town, are you necessarily going to rush out there within 10 months and go snooping around? I don't believe so. And so that's why I find it to be believable that many of these people testified as to not knowing what was going on at the camp. That makes sense. That explanation makes sense for sure. Yeah. Well, at the very end of episode nine, the men receive the news that Hitler shot himself. Then, the beginning of episode 10, the men are sent to take Berktus Cotton. Now, the show simply says that that's the symbolic home of the Nazi party. It doesn't really get into a lot of what that actually was or why it, why it was the symbolic home of the Nazi party. But can you give us a little more context around Berktus Cotton and what it was and, and why it was such a symbolic home for the Nazis? I sit around this house dreaming of people asking me to provide context of why Bechtus Garden was symbolic to the National Socialists. So thank you. This is the best question I've received all week. Bechtus Garden becomes central and in many ways toxic soil in the relationship that Germany has with the National Socialist Party. Starting immediately after Adolf Hitler was released from prison, as you may know, Adolf Hitler was arrested after an attempted coup d'etat against the Bavarian government, and he served a brief period of time in prison. And in the aftermath of his prison sentence, he completed his personal political testament that we know as the book Mein Kampf, My Struggle. Adolf Hitler began writing the book when he was still in prison. But then when he got out of prison, he had so many followers and supporters that they wanted him to, com- to complete this political testament. And one of those supporters was a man named Dietrich Eckert, who was a landowner and owned, he owned property in this little town in southern Bavaria called Bechtesgaden. And Eckert encouraged Adolf to come down and provided him a little bit of a stipend and encouraged him to move up to a a little hunting lodge that was basically a cabin on a hill above the town of Bechtesgaden. Um, And they wanted him to go there and to live in isolation and complete his book, which is what he ultimately does. As it turns out, Adolf Hitler had been there before. He had not spent significant amounts of time there before, but the time period that he would eventually spend after he gets out of prison in the, the Bavarian Alps near Bechtesgaden, he falls in love with the place, which is what happens to everyone. Everyone who goes there walks away from, all right, it's called the Bechtesgaden Land. That's the name of the valley, meaning it's the land of the Bechtesgadeners, the people that live in the area. Everyone that goes there goes, I get it. I get it now. I mean, the scenery in the episode was just beautiful. 
It's devastating. It devastates you because then you'll go back to your mundane reality and you'll sit there going, this damn place doesn't look nearly like the Bechtus got in the land valley. Without me being too ridiculous, it is a stunning place. The mountains are extremely dramatic. You have, in fact, the highest mountain in Bavaria, the Watzmann that towers over you. You have the Hohergal, and then you also have Mount Kelstein, and it towers over you so that when you're in downtown Bechtesgaden, you're looking at these magnificent mountains all around you. And then off to, to the north is the Unterberg, which is running along the top of the mountain is the border between Germany and Austria. And that's the mountain that's featured prominently in The Sound of Music. And it's beautiful to ever. You're just surrounded by this incredible, astonishing beauty. And also, even today, it is a place that strikes a much different appearance than the cities do. And I think that that's the, the key to why it spoke to Adolf Hitler. And that is that Adolf Hitler... You know, he spent a lot of time um, after World War I in Vienna. And Vienna was a multilingual, multiracial place. And Adolf Hitler didn't care for that. Adolf Hitler didn't care. He didn't like the world that was complicated. He preferred the world that was simple. He preferred a world where everyone was basically the same, where you weren't confronted with another culture that spoke a different language and practiced a different religion. These were things that belonged to the cities. If you went to Berlin, you got a lot of that. If you were in Vienna, you got a lot of that. And Adolf Hitler didn't like those things. And so when he had his sojourn finishing the book from in this little mountain hut called Haus Wackenfeld, that was the name of the cabin on the mountain above Bechtesgaden where he went and finished the book. He went there and I think took a deep breath of the idyllic qualities of the valley and being confronted with nature and its beauty. And a lot of people that look just like you and they have the same values as you, they treat you kindly and everybody's respectful and everyone's a good Catholic. Everybody presents this, this homogeneity that you just do not find in modern metropolitan areas. Because what is it that defines the modern metropolitan area? heterogeneity. You're finding a heterogeneous reality of people speaking different languages, practicing different religions, people that are rich, people that are poor, a bunch of people that are right in the middle. You get all of these wildly differing things that are crammed into a city, and Adolf Hitler rejected that. He didn't care for that reality. He preferred the reality of homogeneity, where everyone was basically the same. And so what he found in that valley was the Germany that he wanted to create. And more and more, because this, the valley appeals to him so much. For that matter, I mean, the, you can just listen to the way I talk about it. You can tell that I love it there. It's one of the, my favorite places on earth, and I miss it because of COVID-19. And I'm not a national socialist, and, and I'm not a crazed dictator. And I can still love the valley, and he loved it too. And if anything, it helps me understand the way that his gears were turning a little bit and the way that he looked to the simplified, idyllic country life in southern Bavaria, and he imagined that he could create that for all of Germany. But in order to create that, you got to shove out all the Jews and all the foreigners, and you got to get the gypsies out of here, and you can't have Slavs in there. You have to basically create a world just for the group of people that you think represent the greatest value. The overall conceit of that, that 
well, I think these people should be allowed this land because I like them. It's so conceited at its core. But that's how he began to look at the place. And he began spending more and more time there. Eventually, House Wackenfeld, which was the the cabin up the mountain where he finished the book, he purchased it. And then in 1936, the place went into this big, it went into this big renovation where they expanded it, they made it bigger and they made it better. And it became effectively his presidential palace. And it was named the Berghof. And it's at this point that I should I quickly identify the three critical parts of this puzzle, because everything that's about to happen in Band of Brothers happens in the middle of this puzzle, and the puzzle can be a little confusing. The puzzle consists of three distinct pieces. Number one, city of Bechtesgaden. It's down in the valley right along the Salzach River. And then number two, the village called Obersalzberg, which is halfway up the mountain. And that's where House Wackenfeld, that ultimately comes, becomes the Berghof, Adolf Hitler's personal residence, that's where that was. So his personal house was not in Bechtesgaden. It was just outside of Bechtesgaden, halfway up the mountain. Then, eventually, for his 50th birthday um, in April of 1938, the Nazi party gave him a birthday present in the form of what's called the Kelstein House. We know it as the Eagle's Nest. And the eagle's nest is not a house. He didn't live in it. It had no bedrooms. The eagle's nest was like an event facility. Think of it like that. The eagle's nest, also known as Kelstein House, sits on top of Mount Kelstein. And therefore, you've got your three distinct pieces. Kelstein House on top of the mountain. Hitler's personal residence, the Berghof, halfway down the mountain. And then the city of Beck has gotten itself all the way down to the bottom of the mountain in the valley. Those are your three distinct pieces. The, it's important to, to really carve them out separately and so conspicuously and deliberately because it figures into the story that we're about to have to deal with. And so Adolf Hitler, as time goes by, he likes living in House Wachenfeld, which is expanded in 1936 into the Berghof, his personal residence. He likes spending time there more than he likes spending time in Berlin. And in fact, during the course of the Second World War, Adolf Hitler spends the majority of his time at the Berghof in the village called Obersalzberg, halfway up the mountain above Bechtesgaden. In fact, he's there on Tuesday, June 6, 1944, in this famous incident where he is eventually awakened and he talks on the phone about D-Day. Anyway, Adolf Hitler, in going there to his mountain retreat, in the Bavarian Alps to finish his political manifesto. He, in, in so doing, basically turned the soil of the Obersalzberg, where his house was, he basically turned that into the most toxic soil in all of Europe. Because if you think about it, that's the soil upon which the fundamentalist ideas, the absolutism of National Socialism, was most clearly articulated in his political manifesto, Mein Kampf. And that's why it became something um, symbolically representative of National Socialism. And that's why it meant something to these soldiers, the soldiers depicted in, the, in Band of Brothers, because this was his home. This was, in many ways, the home of National Socialism, of the ideology itself. So it was the home of, the, of this cursed abyss of an ideology, and it was where he made his home. 
during the course of the Second World War. And that's why it was the last prize that everybody wanted to get to just as the war was ending. That's why as they're driving through, it, like, it's completely, there's nobody there. And I think, was it Nixon? So, one, one, of the, one of the guys says, this is the, the only place where you can't say that you're not a Nazi because nobody's going to believe you because everybody, you have to be one to be here, basically. Right, which is hilarious because the town itself was, was not completely full, but there were several people in that town that were just not Nazis. And in fact, there's a really funny thing. I mean, if Nazi stuff can be funny at any point, but the big problem was that as Adolf Hitler began doing business more and more from his house, the Berghof at the Obersalzberg, halfway up the mountain. As he began doing that more and more, it was necessary to sort of serve the fact that the boss wants to be at his summer house down in the mountains. And so they ultimately built an annex to the Reich's chancellery. It's in nearby. It's a place that's called Strube, not far away, like maybe a mile outside of town. Um, but you had to go down the mountain through Bechtesgaden to the other side of town to get to this, this annex. And so there were these rings of defenses around Hitler. Keep in mind, Hitler's not living in Bechtesgaden. He's living halfway up the mountain outside of Bechtesgaden. And so more and more people were having to come there in connection with their official business with the Third Reich and, and, and what it was doing. And so they built this Reich's chancellery. They ultimately then build a barracks building for a regiment of mountain troops that can function as a guard force in the valley. They eventually build this train station in Bechtesgaden that is way bigger than it needs to be. They build this train station for like a city the size of Dusseldorf, practically. And they build it in a town that was 1,800 people. And as more and more these people were showing up, they're bringing, they've got troops, they've got guards that are there. They're, uh, more and more people are in uniform or in this little idyllic town. And the locals kind of didn't care for it that much. And the locals grumbled about it a little bit. It was ultimately to such a point that when you have troops guarding the area, you have to give them a pass to take some time off. And they were going into town more and more and doing things like getting drunk, hitting on the good Catholic girls. And eventually there was some recognition that that was not the ideal um, circumstance for the city of Bechtesgaden, which is this tiny little sleepy town in, in the mountains. And the result was that the, the government then built a beer hall in 1937 and that beer hall is, it's not massive like what you find in Munich, but it's big and it's still there today. And it is with great irony whenever I have tours there that we'll go to that beer hall and I'll, and I'll stand there and I'm a non-drinker, but I'll watch everybody enjoy a beer and, and I'll think, yeah, here we are enjoying a beer in the same place that the people that guarded that mountain and guarded the man who was living on that mountain. This is where they came to burn off a little steam and and sing some beer songs. This is where they went in October to celebrate the yearly beer festival. This is, it's, it's otherworld, otherworldly and it's creepy. And so in this way, there were people in the valley, in Bechtesgaden itself and other, and other places in the valley that resented all of these northerners, all these people from North Germany that came down there with their coarse manners that weren't proper Catholics and they, you know, stomped around in their uniforms. I'm not saying everybody in town was like that, but there were people in town that were like that. That's why I find that line in the miniseries to be something that I, I know I quote when I lead tours because it provokes this, this discussion of the way that nationalist socialism as an ideology was absorbed among all of the people. I am not an apologist. I'm here to say that 
Nazi Germany was full of absolutists who were heavily politicized, and they made the freight train of National Socialism run. And it wasn't just one man that took a normal, peace-loving country down a negative path, that it's a vastly more complicated constellation of, ma- of facts that combined to make Germany a country full of people who willingly went along with the plan. But to be honest, there were some people that pushed back a little bit, and there were a few in Berchtesgaden itself. Well, you were, you were talking earlier about people wanting to be the first to get there. And in the show, we see that the Nazis cause this massive landslide to block the road. And then Colonel Sink comes and he tells the men that uh, he got off the phone for, with the French General Leclerc. And he bragged to Sink that he was the first into Paris and now he's going to be the first into Berchtesgaden. And the Spears says, uh, Easy Company can find another way in. And then just like that, the show is setting up this idea that there's a race to get there first. Later on, it looks like the Americans get to Berchtesgaden first, and then Easy Company takes the Eagle's Nest. Was there actually this race among the Allies to be the first to get there? There was a race, indeed. And Easy Company did not win it. In fact, Easy Company came in third place. Third place. Okay. Okay. Third place, baby. Shall I walk you quickly through that timeline? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm curious now then if that's not what happened, then what did happen? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the fascinating thing is that I, I, I had to present at a conference once about this, and and there was there was a strange hostility to anybody that challenged the Dick Winters personal account because Doctor because Winters told Ambrose that he was the first to reach there, that when he got there there was nobody else there, so they were the first. And although he may have seen no other troops there when he reached Bechtesgaden, other troops had been there. Just to put it into an easily digestible timeline. On May 4th, 1945, Easy Company was north of Bechtesgaden between um, the towns of Rosenheim and Prien am Kimsee. On that same day, the 3rd Battalion of the 7th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd Infantry Division, a battalion that was under command of Lieutenant Colonel John A. Heinkes, reached the city of Bechtesgaden. So, in other words, on May 4th, the 3rd Battalion, 7th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division, was already in Bechtesgaden. In fact, that afternoon, the afternoon of May 4th, 1945, the 3rd Battalion of the 7th Infantry Regiment accepted the formal surrender of, of the city in Schlossplatz, which is the, the big, the central square around the, the castle. There's an old castle in, the, in Bechtesgaden. Simultaneous to that surrender at Schlossplatz, elements of the French 2nd Armored Division reached the area using another road network and drove up to the Oba Salzburg. And once again, Oba Salzburg is the village where Adolf Hitler maintained a private residence halfway up the hill outside of Bechtesgaden. So on May 4th, you have Easy Company about 50 miles away. Maybe not 50, a little bit less than that. You have Easy Company between Rosenheim and Prinon Kimse. 3rd Battalion, 7th Infantry Regiment accepts the surrender of the city of Bechtesgaden. And then the French, halfway up the mountain, they reach the Oba Salzberg, which is where Adolf Hitler's house was. And then they continue up the mountain all the way to the Kelstein House, which we call the Eagle's Nest. So there was a race. The French won. 
The French were the first to reach the eagle's nest. But an important, the reason that I carved all of this out, and I hope it's making sense now, is that the French got to eagle's nest first while the U.S. Army 7th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division, was in the town of Bechtesgaden. So there, everyone's getting there. It's not one thing. It's three separate things. The French got to one of those three separate things first. The 3rd Division got to one of the other three separate things before Easy Company did. Then on May 5th, 1945, the following day, the 3rd Battalion of the 7th Infantry Regiment has an official flag-raising ceremony at the Ove Salzberg, which is the, the village halfway up the mountain where Adolf Hitler's personal house was located. And that house is known as the Berghof. And there, there I, I should send you the photos. There's actually a, a rather well-known photograph showing men of the 3rd Battalion, 7th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division, raising this flag. They're raising it on a flagpole that was basically right where Hermann Goring's house was. And Hermann Goring's house was basically across the street from Adolf Hitler's house. Real quick, I will mention, if you want to see that photo, you can see it at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash 184. That's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash 184. Well, simultaneous to this flag-raising ceremony, halfway up the mountain at the Oba Salzburg, Easy Company, in the afternoon of May 5th, 1945, enters the town Bechtesgaden, and it enters the town on the road that leads from Bad Reichenhall. And as you come into that town, one of the one of the things that you encounter on the outskirts of town as you come in is an old hotel that most of it is gone now, but the garages from this old hotel still stand today. And that hotel was called the Bechtesgadener Hof Hotel. And it is significant, and I mention it because you get this big played out set piece scene of E Company men going into, first of all, the lobby of the Bechtesgadenhof Hotel, and then they go into the dining room, and that's when the silverware is collected. Do you remember that scene? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're picking it up in their helmets and <laughs> saying something to the effect of, well, might as well take it before the next people come along and they're going to take it. Exactly. And it's famously mentioned in the book Band of Brothers that. That silverware was used on Thanksgiving for years to come. That's where that scene plays out. And an interesting little footnote is that Adolf Hitler had a sister named Paula, and Paula lived under the assumed name Paula Wolf rather than Paula Hitler. She lived in the Bechtesgadenhof Hotel. And so when they were doing that and taking silverware from the dining room, Adolf Hitler's sister was upstairs in her room, interestingly. So that occurs May 5, 1945. The following day, May 6, 1945, it's only then that men of Easy Company are going up the mountain to the Oba Salzburg, which again is the village halfway up the mountain where Adolf Hitler's house was. And so they go up there, and that's where you get the scenes that you start seeing them on May 6th, like going into Goering's wine collection. You know that scene with Oh, yeah, like 10,000 bottles of the finest liquor. Yeah. Right. That's all discovered. The next day, Winters, you know, takes Nixon on May 7th. Winters takes Nixon in there and like turns him loose. Kid in a candy store kind of thing. Anyway, but on May 6th, Easy Company has gone all the way up to the Opa Salzburg, the village where Adolf Hitler's house is. They explore the area and then they take the further step of going all the way up to the to the top of the mountain, which is where the Kelstein house is located, and that's what we call the Eagle's Nest. 
And so that's why in the series, you have this nice series, you have this nice group of scenes, group of shots rather, that show men walking around and exploring the eagle's nest. But there's, there's a reality that we have to acknowledge about the eagle's nest. And that is in the big picture of all these things, the city of Bechtesgaden, the village of Obersalzburg, where Adolf Hitler's house was located, and then Kilstein House on top of the mountain. Out of this, this constellation of things, the eagle's nest is the least important and the least meaningful. However, it is the most famous. It's the thing that everybody thinks of. Everyone thinks of the eagle's nest. And I find that it's it's not wrong of me to make this generalization. I find that basically everybody thinks that was Adolf Hitler's house, and it wasn't. Adolf Hitler's house was the Berghof. It's not far away. It's a couple thousand feet below the eagle's nest, but it's on the same mountain. But they're two separate, entirely separate things. And so it's not until May 6th, it's not until May 5th that Easy Company enters Bechtesgaden. And it's not until May 6th that they make their way up there. It's entirely believable, I think, that when Winters rolled into town on the road from Bad Reichenhall and he rolled up to the Bechtesgaden Hof Hotel and he went inside, I could see how he looked around and basically all the civilians have disappeared off the streets and there's not a soul around. And I could see why he would think, we're the first ones here. We've won. When in reality, they were kind of the third, but not entirely that, because keep in mind also that when the French got there, the French really, there's some evidence to suggest that the French went into town, but there's also some evidence that suggests the French went straight up to the Obersalzburg and then straight up to the Kelstein house. It could be said that the French were the first up there on the mountain and that the 3rd Battalion of the 7th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division, that they were the first in Bechtesgaden itself. So do you see how it becomes a, a bit of a complicated, confusing situation? Yeah, and I'm curious, maybe you can help clarify, because in the in the show, when we see the rocks that the Nazis have blasted part of the mountain to block the road, when they're talking in front of that, they're talking about going into Berchtesgaden. And so, but would that actually not have been going in there? Because they're, they're standing in front of that when Sink comes up and he's saying, oh, we're going to have this race to be the first to get into Berchtesgaden. But it sounds like that would actually have been down below, correct? Like in the valley... Sort of. Once again, another academic answer. And the reason the reason I'm using sort of is that there's several roads that you can use to approach Bechtesgaden. One road that comes from the north heading south, which is the road from Salzburg. And then there's a road that's sort of to the north and west from Bad Reichenhall, which is the route that Easy Company used. And then there is another mountain pass that can be used to work your way into the into the valley. And that mountain pass I'm aware that some French units used it. And a point that I like to make about what was happening at this point, and that is a mountain pass. It goes through a little town that's called Insel, where what we know is, keep in mind, you had multiple units. So you had elements of the 3rd Infantry Division, elements of the 101st Airborne Division, and elements of the French Armored Division. And all of them are moving over limited and confined road networks through a mountainous area, trying to reach the same town. And so they're using multiple avenues of advance. And so that's a part of the miniseries that I've often thought, like, I kind of wonder where they got that because I drive the route that Easy Company used all the time and you don't encounter anything that looks like what's depicted in the series. You heard it here first. The entertainment version distorts the truth. (laughs) 
And so they, they, what they did was something that they've done elsewhere in the series, and that is that they've sprinkled some sugar on the story. They've taken a story that was kind of cool to begin with, and they've made it a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more compelling by making it this massive landslide collapsed over the road and blocking the access that has the effect of amplifying this race to the final prize. You know, in, like in the first Star Wars movie, you know, as the Death Star is, as they're approaching the Death Star to attack it, and the Death Star, they keep cutting to these, what's supposed to be a computer image, but it's really just analog stuff that's showing the Death Star coming into position from behind the planet. And it's sort of a race against time. That scene is doing that. That scene is amplifying this, we got to get there first race against time thing that Easy Company lost. Well, as the series comes to an end, Easy Company is in Eagle's Nest when they hear the news that the German army has surrendered. It's VE Day, victory in Europe. Then. They must decide what to do next. Some men have enough points to be discharged. Some don't, which means that they're expecting to go to the Pacific to fight the Japanese. Winters and Nixon, they even try to transfer to the 13th Airborne because they're shipping out faster. But ultimately, it seems like most of the men in Easy Company stay in Europe until the end of the war. How accurate was the way the show portrayed the end of the war for Easy Company? In a word, very. It was very accurate because what the series is presenting is this complex and a little delicate situation associated with the adjusted service rating score system, what we call the point system. And this was the system that was established within the European theater of operations. It was established actually in late 1944 and then adjusted again in March of 45. And it was a system by which certain ranks and certain military occupational specialties were given a numerical point rating. And the higher you got, the closer that you could get to qualifying with a sufficient number of points to go home early so that you can receive your discharge and you can process out of the service. And so if you think about that, that sounds like a, in fact, the way that I just described it probably put people to sleep because it's very bureaucratic and it's very boring. And your points were based on your rank, the amount of time you were in the service, the amount of time that you were overseas the job that you did in the service, it also uh, also affecting it were things like um, whether or not you had the Purple Heart, um, whether or not you had additional awards like the Bronze Star, the Silver Star, the Distinguished Service Cross, or the Medal of Honor. All of these things exerted an influence on your overall point rating, qualifying you to go home early. And it fascinates me that this becomes a storytelling vehicle within the final episode of the of the series that's it's not just miserably boring. I think it's kind of dynamic and interesting the way that it's presented, where what it does is they use the point system, the adjusted service rating score system. They use it as a means of flashing back to what everybody had been doing or else what, every, or what else everybody had not been doing, for example, so that you have O'Keefe who clearly does not have enough points to go home. Don't even think about it, O'Keefe. You're not going home anytime soon. You have added to that this dynamic of Winters and Nixon attempting to laterally transfer into 13th Airborne Division so that they can go and continue fighting. And then you also have people that are already beginning to imagine a civilian life transitioning out of wartime service and into a civilian existence back home. What I really like about this is that what other war movie does this well? There really aren't many, are there? movies that address what these people are going to end up doing, how they get out of uniform and what they're going to end up doing in the post-war time period with their lives as civilians. 
It also tackles another issue that is definitely worth mentioning, and that is the very large number of people who die after the war has ended. And it tackles it powerfully with a couple of characters. We have, as a result of accidental shootings, I say that only because that's what the military refers to them. There is no such thing as an accidental shooting. Shootings are either intentional or negligent. And so we have in the episode, the drunk soldier uh, that I would argue is, I mean, it's, it ends up being a, an act of negligence because he's drunk, he's intoxicated, he's impaired, he can't possibly think reasonably. And he shoots um, Staff Sergeant Charles Grant in the head. Right. He shoots Grant. The guy, and he's a replacement for my company, 506. And then we have this very dynamic set piece that depicts the incident itself. He shoot, first of all, he shoots a French officer, shoots a British officer, then he shoots Grant, and then they track him down. And there's this, I think, a very powerful scene where the E Company men have pulled him in and they're beating him. And Spear, Spears comes in. And isn't it interesting how they're, here we are at the end and we can declare something that these filmmakers and writers have done. And that is that they are, even now we're within the last 20 minutes of the final episode. And what do we get? I think we get the greatest Spears moment of the series. And it's the moment where Spears points the 45 at the guy and he's holding it there. And in fact, there are a couple of Spears things, you know, when Spears walks in, there are two men up at the front and Spears goes, where is he? And the both of them hesitate and you hear Spears shout, where is he? And it's the only time he raises his voice during the series. I think it's really interesting. And then he hears the noise of the beating going on in the next room. He goes in there, throws the door open. The crowd parts. There's the guy. He's all bloody. Spears walks up and says, where's the piece? And the guy says, what piece? And he pistol whips him. You say, sir, when you speak to an officer. And then he shoves the pistol in the guy's face. And the camera angle is the pistol muzzle is right in your face. And you see it just quiver a little bit. And I was just like... Oh my God, that was such a powerful moment just to see him where you could say, this is a man that doesn't care. This man killed prisoners in Normandy and he might just kill this guy. And then what does he do? He holsters, he, he takes, he looks on his hand and he sees some of the guy's blood on his hand and he wipes the guy's blood on his shirt, holsters the pistol and says, turn this piece of shit over to the MPs. It's a powerful scene that speaks to something that actually was an epidemic in the European theater when the war ended. And it's an epidemic that's well presented when then we get Private John Genevieve, who gets killed in this pointless car accident, who's, by the way, played by Tom Hardy. Genevieve just dies in this haphazard automobile accident. One thing that happens in the European theater at the conclusion of the conflict is that we lose a lot of people like that. People who had survived the war itself only to get to the end. And the war's all over. They breathe a sigh of relief that they're going to survive and they're killed by negligent shootings. They're killed in plane crashes. They're killed in, in automobile accidents, actually kind of a lot of automobile accidents. And technically it's an automobile accident post-war in Europe that ultimately claims the life of General George Patton. It's a big problem. And it fascinates me that this series addresses it because E-Company men were disappearing as a result of this phenomenon that makes everything seem all the more tragic. Yeah. I think that there's the line that says, you know, the, the war was over and yet somehow people are still dying. Like they have weapons, alcohol, and too much time on their hands. There it is. There's the quote from the series. That says it all, doesn't it? We're at, we're at the end of our story now, so it's might, might as well mention it. And we're also beginning to see 
this process of engaging with and interacting with the enemy, the for, well, the former enemy. Because you see the German colonel comes and surrenders to Winters in this famous moment where the German pulls his pistol out to turn it over to Winters and Winters um, has him keep the pistol. The interesting thing is that once again, greatest cliche of all in the series is depicted as a Luger. In reality, it was not a Luger. <laughs> and Winters ultimately did end up with that pistol and took it home. And if you look at there, one thing that makes Band of Brothers really stand out and it personalizes the series are these introductory interstitials that we get with every episode. The episodes always, you get the opening credits and then black screen and it fades up to these veterans that are telling the story. And then it goes to the series. And a decision that they made that I think was brilliant was that we get this, all 10 episodes we're hearing from these men and we don't know who they are because they haven't, haven't given them a name slate. And we get to the end of this episode and what do we get? We get to finally learn who they actually are. And I feel like that's, I think that that was a way of blending the living memory of Band of Brothers into this retelling that I found it to be riveting. Because I remember when we got to the end, the baseball game at the end, then also the surrender, you know, where Winters is there and the German colonel is saying goodbye to his men. And he's basically quoting the St. Crispin's Day speech. And God is translating for him. And it's a beautiful moment. And everyone acts it perfectly. And it's a perfect closure to what this journey has been. And then I remember getting there the first time I watched it. And it went to black screen. And I was like, damn, that was awesome. And then it came back up to the veterans. And they were identified by name. And I remember thinking, this is the best thing I've ever watched in my life. While we were talking... Before doing these interviews, you recommended something, you know, taking some time, reflect on the entire series overall. And I, I think that's a great idea. So as we wrap up our look at the Band of Brothers series, if you had to pick a favorite episode, which one would it be and why? There's so, there's so much good. There's so much good in so many of these episodes. And I would be, I would be lying to myself if I didn't say episode six, Bastone, final answer. <laughs> Episode six is just art. I love it. I absolutely love, I feel like Shane Taylor played Doc Rowe. I don't know anybody alive that could have um, made that character come alive quite like he did. And in fact, um, the actress that per, that's portraying uh, Renee LaMere, I thought she was fantastic. And I enjoyed this thing. You can't say that it was a romantic side quest. What was it? It wasn't that because it's never brought to fruition. But we cared. Didn't we care? And all of it, I mean, it's these massive events. The world is watching. You have our group of battle-hardened veterans that go there and they begin this ordeal of suffering there. And the fact that we're focusing on the medic to tell this part of the story means that we're telling a different story than the story that we would be telling if we were focusing on a rifleman or a machine gunner. and. I really feel like um, Shane Taylor portrayed someone from Louisiana very well and that his accent wasn't terrible. His accent was pretty good. Anybody that can do a Louisiana accent on film and not be awful automatically gets my respect. So good work. Good work there, Shane. I, I do love the episode. But with that being said, I know that I mentioned that 
the closing sequences of episode one, I think, are just art. There's a lot of interstitial music, but then we have basically two main pieces of music in the series to include the piece that plays at the end of every episode, which is sort of that slower piece. But the music that plays at the end of it's not every episode, but almost every episode. But that music playing at the end of episode one, as all the ground crewmen and the anti-aircraft gunners are watching the paratroopers get on the C-47s and they take off. I feel like that's the strongest ending of the series because that ending, I remember going through that ending and thinking, uh, next week can't come fast enough. Uh, they left me hanging like I have never been left hanging in TV in my entire life. But with that being said, I would be wrong if I didn't go on and on about the opening and the closing of episode nine, Why We Fight, which I think is such a superlative achievement of artistic expression that I can, I'm still in awe of it, particularly with the fact that our episode opens with the violin and it begins with, it would be the, it's the fourth movement of Ludwig van Beethoven's quartet number 14, C sharp minor, the movement specifically being Andante ma non troppo e molto cantabile. It's excruciating how beautiful that music is. And for them to have merged that music into this story the way that they did, I can't compliment that enough because especially for it to begin the episode and then the same violin is what ends the episode and that what has happened during the course of, of that, that moment and because it's basically the quartet begins playing in the rubble and then what do we get? We get the flashback to the discovery of the concentration camp. We get the flashback to a few things and we get what president's dead. And then we get what Hitler's dead. Although I'm not going to mention the fact that this is all supposedly happening on April 11th. Never mind that because neither Adolf Hitler nor Franklin Delano Roosevelt died on April 11th, 1945. But you know what? By the, by when that opened, I was, it literally sucked the air out of me that they chose that piece of music. That piece of music is so, it might represent perfection. And that's not just my opinion, but Franz Schubert himself believed that that piece of music, specifically that movement, represented perfection. In fact, after Schubert heard the first performance of the Immortal Cantabile, the fourth movement of the quartet in C-sharp minor, he said, after this, what is left for us to write? And that was Schubert that said that. And that, that, that Beethoven wrote this. I couldn't help it as I'm listening to it. And I'm thinking of the, the stories that we've just heard. And I'm thinking about the experience of American soldiers in combat and liberating a concentration camp in World War II. And I'm listening to that luscious music. And I'm thinking about Beethoven, who at that point was probably 90% deaf. And in 1826, crafted this. And that these writers went and went, let's build it around this piece of music, because where else would you get that? And that the music becomes metaphoric of the Germany, the greatness of Germany that we're seeing. We're experiencing this thing that the Germans created, that the Germans gave us, one of the many gifts that they have given us. And that it's right there juxtaposed against the destruction of the war that was fought over the political ideology that they also gave us. It's just so beautiful, I can barely think about all of it. 
And I will go back over and over again and just watch that scene. So as much as I love the Bastogne episode, and as much as I love to just kind of pump it up, I cannot get enough of episode nine. <laughs> Every single episode is my favorite, yes. <laughs> I'm going to just start going down why each episode is great and why I love them all. Because, I mean, for God's sake, episode two, I mean, what can we do? The Day of Days is such a, it's an excellent episode. But I had to choose a favorite, and I have so far gotten an F- minus in choosing a favorite. <laughs> because I've offered up three episodes now of my favorite. I'm a big fan of this series, and I really do admire it, even after 20 years. That says something. How about the best actor in the series? Man, that's so hard. I really do think that Damian Lewis was excellent. Who else could have brought Dick Winters to life the way he did? At this point, it's, it's unthinkable. I don't know that there was any living actor that could have captured that. And I know I was riffing on it earlier and joking about it, but like the idea of be stoic, but be resolute, be brave, but also be humble and go. Who could do that today? I don't know that there are a lot of actors that can. And that's another thing that makes me love this series, because let's be honest, not all of these actors were really well known or really well established in their career when it happened. And Look at the acting talent in this. And I. this is also sort of a bittersweet thing for me because I had worked on the HBO miniseries, The Pacific. I wasn't in a major role, but I was in a very, very minor role involved in writing and research for the series. And the series came out and it just went, it just flopped. It was nowhere near as popular as this series has become. It didn't speak to people. I found that it didn't reach, uh, uh, this sounds arrogant, it, it, it didn't reach the diverse audience the way that, uh, that Band of Brothers did. And it just wasn't nearly the accomplishment that Band of Brothers was. And I guess that's why we're still here 20 years later talking about it. And who's out there talking about the Pacific? Yeah, not many. I don't think many people are, which is tragic because I, was, I became ultimately friendly with so many of the people featuring, featuring prominently in the Pacific. And it, it, it disappointed me. It crushed me in a way when the Pacific came out and was just not received the way that Band of Brothers was received. And I have now had over a decade to think about it and figure out why did that happen? And it doesn't matter why. What I, what I think does matter is that rather than trying to figure out what went wrong with the Pacific is I'm left with what went right with Band of Brothers. And I think it's a perfect storm. Everything that came together in this came together perfectly. It's a great story. It's concise. It's manageable. When you devote to long form like that, you have enough time to make people care. And the combination of great writers and excellent actors made people care. It was to the point that I felt like when it came out, I was already, I already had a master's degree. I hadn't started my doctoral program yet. But still, I was a snotty, you know, grad student type. I had too smart to be manipulated by a stupid movie. Uh, and I'm going to sit here and pick out all the stuff that was wrong. And I found myself laughing when I was supposed to. And I found myself crying when I was supposed to. I was completely disarmed by this series. I'm going to shut up about it eventually. But when the quartet in C minor started at the beginning of episode nine, I was like, you had me at hello. What are you doing to me now? You've already got me in this and you throw this on me? I can't take it. I can't deal with this. 
And for them to have woven that music, I'm going to stop about the Beethoven, but for them to have woven that into a metaphor within the story, it's just a level of sophistication and storytelling that might be perfection. And that's one, one of the reasons why I, I have a hard time selecting which episode I like best. But I think it's useful for us to bring up, not just so that the people can listen to my opinions about Band of Brothers, but because I think there is something to us attempting to decode why it succeeded like it did. Well, this is going to be tough again. It, it's, hard, it's hard to pick a reason why, but there's Band of Brothers, obviously. I mean, it's, we're recording this in 2021, so it has literally been 20 years since this was released. Uh, but then there's also Saving Private Ryan that also had a huge impact. Do you think one of them has had a bigger impact on people's interest in World War II history more than the other? Would it be Band of Brothers or, or Saving Private Ryan? I think it's a double dose. <laughs> both of them. They both did because that's what I hear. You know, I've been leading tours. Basically, Private Ryan and this miniseries created the life that I have led for the last 20 years. They created the, mu- the museum where I used to work. They created the tour industry that I used to be a part of until 2020 that I hope to get back to next year. They created all of this. And I remember what it was like because when Band of Brothers comes out, uh, Band of Brothers is 2001, Private Ryan is what, 97? I think it was July 97, maybe June 97. And so they're just a couple of years apart, four years apart. I remember what that did was that gave me a misleading sense of optimism because I remember thinking, we are entering a golden age of cinema We have just begun with these two. We are now going down this path. Because also, um, just in the middle of the Private Ryan stuff, a movie came out that I absolutely adore called The Thin Red Line. I think you've seen it. It was Private Ryan, Thin Red Line. A lot of people don't like Thin Red Line. I think there are reasons for that that I could explain. But Private Ryan, Thin Red Line, Band of Brothers all came out. And I was thinking, man, we are set. We are going to – these. the subject's going to get – um, treated within the motion picture industry and the long form um, subscription cable uh, industry. It's going to get treated as everything's going to be good. And I was, I think, a little mistaken to be so optimistic because in the years since then, what have we gotten? Uh, without being too catty about it, I just have to point to a series of disappointments. Because I like to keep in mind that a few months before the premiere of Saving of Band of Brothers, of the movie Pearl Harbor came out and it hurt. Instant classic. <laughs> Instant classic. <laughs> I it sounds like sounds like you might we might share an opinion here. But it came out and I remember going, okay. And then Band of Brothers came out and I was like, oh, okay, that's more like it. I remember thinking that yeah, okay, we had one that was a little weird. Um and I wasn't with it all the way, but whatever. And in the years that have followed, we just there just hasn't been anything that resonated like Band of Brothers did until Game of Thrones. Uh, I mean, maybe you could say that Walking Dead did to an extent, but blah 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 blah. Walking Dead, go away. I think what they did in making Private Ryan and Band of Brothers is that they set the bar too high. I mean, it's a high bar. It's such a high bar now, and the combination of Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan did something that I cannot help but acknowledge. And that is that they created a phenomenon. And the phenomenon was uh, an across the board, meaningful interest in the history of not just D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge, but the history of the Second World War. And in that way, for all their imperfections, and believe me, 
Save it, Private Ryan. Lots of imperfections. Lots of imperfections. But for, for their imperfections, what they did was something that I could never have to, I could never do because I've written books. I've written articles. Very, very few people have read them. I have not changed a thing on this planet. Stephen Ambrose wrote books and created this phenomenon. And that phenomenon became a center of gravity that attracted more people into a more informed understanding of the history of the Second World War. And I think that that history is far too important for us to just let it begin the long, slow fade into oblivion, the way that I have seen happen with other historical moments. Like when I was really excited and amped up about the 100th anniversary of the Spanish-American War way back in 1998, and it came and went without people even noticing that it had happened. I expected that big things would happen when we reached the 100th anniversary of American entry into the First World War. and Basically, nothing happened. I thought that surely the world will stop on the 100th anniversary of the armistice of 1918. And the world seemed to go, oh, yeah, and then get right back on with itself. So these these major moments um, of of historical um, recognition just kind of came and went with a faintness that caught me off guard. But still, I was at the cemetery on Omaha Beach for the 75th anniversary. And there's no lack of enthusiasm there. There were, we were completely, the cemetery was completely full, 12,000 people in that cemetery. And why is that? What would that ceremony have been as big if there had been no Saving Private Ryan and no Band of Brothers? I don't know. I'm tempted to say, no, I don't think it would have been as big because what Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan did they gave a new generation that interest. Yeah, you had old dudes like me that I've been interested in it my entire life. Yeah, we're going to be there. You don't have to attract us. But young people born in the age of video games, that's, that's, another, that's another subject. Like I now interact with, on a regular basis, people from four or five different countries that were born. They were born after I got out of graduate school. <laughs> And they can't get enough Band of Brothers. And they are learning and living this fascination with the history of the conflict. And it's not for the weird, cynical reasons that I think sometimes sometimes people imagine. I think it's because there's a genuine recognition that that is a war that stood for something. And I think that's why we wrap our heads around Band of Brothers so easily. And we see it so well illustrated with Episode 10 because we were brought into caring about these characters and then we're brought into caring about what ultimately happens to them. And we're brought into it. Why? Because in the previous episode, they liberated a concentration camp. And if that doesn't situate your thinking on the subject, nothing will. Because these were the men who with M1 rifles and Thompson submachine guns in their hands, they opened the gates of concentration camps. And I realized that in this day and age, that is an expression of belief that um, a lot of postmodernists would reject and criticize. But I look at the history of the Second World War, and I see things that were brought to life by Nazi Germany. We'll just pick on them for the moment, since this is Band of Brothers. I see things that Nazi Germany did that I definitely don't want any government doing ever again. And when I think about the way that the men of E Company went to this place in southern Bavaria in April of 1945 
and liberated a, a forced labor camp, it reminds me of why this subject is important. I think everybody would agree, yeah, it's important to remember the Holocaust. And when we remember the Holocaust, we also have to remember the people who fought their way across Europe, across Europe to get to the gates of those camps. And that's why episode nine is so great. And episode 10 is great then, because what do we do? We say goodbye to those guys and we wrap it all up. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Band of Brothers over the past few episodes. It's been a, a blast. Uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard it, Marty also talked about Saving Private Ryan. So some of those, some of those things, uh, we, we had a chance to talk about that. Uh, but for someone listening that wants to learn more about your work, can you share a little bit more about what you do and where they can learn more? Sure. I am an author and historian, and I write and think about the American experience in the Second World War and overall in military history. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can look at my website, martinkamorgan.com. You can also tune in and watch me on TV. I have actually two series that premiered last night on the Science Channel, one called What on Earth and the other one called Strange Evidence. So I continue to do research writing and publishing about the Second World War, and I also do a little broadcasting with my time. These are the things that you can still do during COVID. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and hopefully be getting back out there and, and doing more tours. Yeah, I'm anxious to get back, actually. I can't wait to get back to Europe. It's not looking like 2021 is going to let it happen, but maybe 2022. Thanks again so much for your time, Marty. It's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me on. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Marty Morgan once again for spending hours with us to walk through separating fact from fiction in the entire HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Go show Marty some support. There are multiple ways that you can do that by watching those two series that he mentioned at the end there on the Science Channel, What on Earth or Strange Evidence. Or if you want to learn another great story about paratroopers during World War II, grab a copy of his book on the 507th called Down to Earth the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment in Normandy. I'll have links to all of those and more of Marty's work on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the eagle's nest was Hitler's home. Number two, the point system was a real thing. Number three, during the 1944 Christmas season, the American soldiers trapped in Bastogne was a developing story being followed back in the United States. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's go in a random order and start with number two. The point system was a real thing. That is true. The point system we see depicted in this series is officially known as the Adjusted Service Rating Score System. And just like the series shows, at the end of the war in Europe, each enlisted man needed a score of 85 points to qualify to go home early. That brings us to number three. During the 1944 Christmas season, the American soldiers trapped in Bastogne was a developing story being followed back in the United States. That is also true. As Marty explained, because of the timing of the Battle of the Bulge being around the holidays, that meant a lot of people were at home anyway, so they were able to follow what was going on in the war. And in particular, Bastogne drew people's attention because on a day-to-day basis, no one knew what the fate of the 11,000 or so American troops that were there under siege in Bastogne. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. 
That means number one is the lie. The eagle's nest was Hitler's home. Hitler's home was the Berghof, which was in the Bavarian Alps. Now, the eagle's nest, which was at the top of the mountain near the Berghof, was more of an event space. You can think of it that way. Hitler hardly ever went there, though, because it was located on the top of the mountain and Hitler was afraid of heights. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know it's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. Because if there's one thing that's surprising to most people who are either new to podcasting themselves or they've never even created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, maybe you'll start to appreciate all of the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 53 hours to create and cost $7.32 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 53 hours does not include my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also doesn't include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, uh, do social media, the email newsletter, and all the other little things outside creating this single episode that are still required to make a podcast. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $7.32 is just for things specifically for this one episode. It does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone I'm talking into right now, the cables hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface, the computer, the software, all the podcasts or website hosting costs, and on and on. All those things cost an average of a few hundred dollars every month in out-of-pocket expenses. But as you can tell from this one little example, the real cost of creating a podcast ends up boiling down to time. If we look at these three episodes where we covered Band of Brothers, this series really only cost about $26 in out-of-pocket expenses, but it took me over 143 hours to produce. That time is the real cost of creating a podcast, because if Based on a True Story wasn't helping me pay the bills, well, the bills don't stop. And so quite honestly, I would need to spend all that time on other things that did help me pay the bills. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that is why I am so thankful for these sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show going financially. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll help consider supporting the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. As a bonus, you'll get access to the producer's feed, which as of this recording has over 65 exclusive minisodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes like this one. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's based on a true story podcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>